So we are in Hebrews chapter 5, making our way through the book of Hebrews. And this morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. But in order to look at those verses, we really need to understand the whole context. So I'm going to read chapter 4, verse 14, down to chapter 5, verse 10. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weaknesses. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. As for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. Verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. But he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says in another passage, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Being designated by God as a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Lord, as we come to your word, and as we begin to get into the portion of Hebrews, which in some ways seems so distant from us, Lord, give us understanding and insight into your word that we might understand it, digest it, and practice it, Lord. May you be exalted in our worship of listening and doing your word. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. You know that a storm is coming and you have a boat. To protect your boat, to save your boat, you want to anchor it. And you have two options. You have a big, strong steel anchor that's made of even, let's say, lead. You have another option that you can use as an anchor, and it's a feather. Big storm is coming. If you don't anchor your boat, it's going to be washed out to sea, and you're going to lose your beautiful sailboat. So you can anchor your boat by a lead anchor that's big and massive, or you can anchor your boat to a beautiful pink flamingo feather. Which are you going to choose to anchor your boat? Obviously, you would choose to anchor it to the piece of steel, lead, this massive, weighty object. 
Now, that doesn't mean that a pink flamingo feather is useless. Certainly, it helped the flamingo. Maybe you could use it for a, you know, to, to fill a pillow. Maybe you could use it as a pen, you know, stick it in the ink well or jar, and you can ink and write with it. So a feather is not useless, but in terms of anchoring that bolt, you want something that has massive weight, massive significance. In a very similar way, the book of Hebrews and this passage before us is basically saying that if you trust for the welfare of your even your wealth and your health in terms of eternity, as it says in verse 9, eternal salvation, meaning your, your forever soul and your forever body for your eternal existence for forever and forever and forever. If you depend upon anything other than the supremacy or sufficiency of Jesus Christ, it's like instead of anchoring your boat to a lead weight, you're anchoring your boat to a feather. Trusting for your life today, but especially your forever life, including eternal happiness and gladness, including eternal health and eternal wealth, reigning with Christ, being in, with him forever and ever and forever. If you depend upon anything else for that, other than the supremacy of Jesus Christ, then it's like you're trying to anchor your soul to a feather. Which is not wise. That would not be a wise thing to do. And when we look at this passage, it seems as the book of Hebrews unfolds, that there was this attack on the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ because the writer of Hebrews deals so much with the great high priesthood of Jesus. Jesus is better than Aaron. He's more of like in the line of Melchizedek. And here in the midst of this section, really this whole portion from Hebrews 4.14 all the way to chapter 10 Verse 18 is going to deal with the great high priesthood of Jesus Christ. That's a very important topic. Why? Because probably it seems that these beloved people had at least made professions of Christ. And if you look at Hebrews 6, 9, he says, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation. Most of them are saved, but there is this temptation to forsake Christ because there is this pressure that... You became believers, you professed the name of Jesus Christ, but now you're tempted to go back to that religion that you were saved out of, a second temple Judaism. And there could have been, it seems, when you read these chapters, again, 4.14 to chapter 10, verse 18, the temptation could have been, you need to go back to the to the Arianic, that, that Judaistic, priesthood, because those were the real priests. Jesus, was he from the tribe of Levi? No. And you're depending upon somebody to be your priest who's not even qualified to be a Levitical priest, let alone the great high priest. He's from the tribe of Judah. And you're trusting him? How can he intercede? He's not even qualified 
to be a priest. And and you think he can take away your sin? You need to go back to your old religion. It seems that that would have been the, the pressure, the words that they were hearing and what was pressuring them to desert and forsake Christ. So, here in this passage, as we saw the past few weeks, there is this main point that since Jesus Christ is your best representative ever, cling to and cry out to him. And that was in chapter 4, 14 through 16. But that point continues. Because if you look at chapter 5, look at chapter 5, the very first word. But if you have the NIV, I'm sorry, the NIV, I think they take out the word for. Not sure why. But the word for is there in the New Testament Greek text. This for in chapter 5 is strengthening and supporting what was just said in chapter 4, 14 through 16. Since you have the best representative with God ever, Jesus Christ, who is like you, but also not like you, cry out to him, cling on to him, for, and he's going to support now in verses 1 through 10, what he just said in verses 14 to 16. So chapter 5, 1 through 11, if it's hard to understand initially, understand that it's given us more motivation in order to cling on to Jesus tenaciously and never let go and to cry out to him, Lord, help me, help me, Jesus. And Jesus will give us that special and specific grace in the time of need. You see that in verse 16. And then verses 1 through 10 of chapter 5 is again given more support for us to cling to and cry out to Jesus. He is our supreme. He is our sufficient representative. And so we trust him and cling to him and never desert him. Now this morning, this passage here, as we look at it, as it reinforces what was just said in verses 14 through 16, we're going to explain the text and then apply the text. We're going to explain chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. And then after that, we'll spend some time applying the text. Now, first, let's look at the theology of this text. Let's seek to understand this text and its theology that it teaches. And it falls into two different sections. And you can see this clearly in the text itself. If you look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, it's talking about sinful human priests. And then after that, it's going to talk about Christ. You see that in verse 5. So also Christ. Verses 1 through 4 are going to talk about sinful human priests. Verses 5 through 10 are going to talk about the sinless great high priest, Jesus Christ. So again, first, we're going to seek to understand this text and its theology. And first, we're going to seek to understand the human sinful high priests. And there were several elements that a that was involved with being a high priest. Certain dynamics a high priest had. And it's going to bring this out in verses 1 through 4. First, it was that a high priest had to be what? He had to be human. And you can see that in verse 1, for every high priest, again, a high priest is somebody that would represent 
the people to God. Just in a very brief way to summarize it. But he's taken from among men. A high priest had to be a person, a human person. A high priest couldn't be an angel. Any Levitical priest couldn't be an angel. It had to be a human. It couldn't be an animal. It had to be somebody that was made in the image of God. Why? Well, that's the second detail or dynamic of being a high priest because it's said here, taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men. Is that a, a priest would represent on behalf, in the place of, in the stead of mankind. So for that reason, you couldn't have an angel and you couldn't have ultimately an animal. And the book of Hebrews, we'll get into this more and more, ultimately the blood of bulls and goats and lambs did not take away the sins forever of the people of God. It took the blood of Jesus. But that those men that did the work, they had to be men. Why? Because they had to represent men, humans themselves. And so those are the first two dynamics, had to be a human. And you can see how this plays into the Messiah, right? Emmanuel, God with us. God the Son took on flesh. And you'll see that in verse 7, in the days of his flesh. But also, they had to offer sacrifices for sins. And you see this. They were human. They had to be human because they were ministering for humans. But you can keep looking third in terms of these dynamics of a high priest or any priest, but the high priest and things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Gifts, it could be not just a burnt offering, but maybe it was a meal offering. There were, I think, at least five different kinds of offerings. It could be a thanksgiving offering, or it could be that substitutional day of atonement offering. But the high priest would make these sacrifices on behalf of the people. And the idea would often be, uh, if it was a burnt offering, it would be a bloody sacrifice then that was burnt up to God, giving the picture of this aroma that was acceptable to the Lord. And they did this for sins, sacrifices for sins, a, a substitute for sin and those who sinned. Remember, it says in Exodus 34, 34 verse 7, that by no means will God let the guilty go unpunished, and the soul that sins must die. And so there had to be a sacrifice for sin, because when we sin, it's not just a small sin. Any sin is an infinite sin against the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. Any sin is an infinitely heinous sin against God. And so for God to be God, he must punish sin. Otherwise, he wouldn't be a holy God. And so there had to be a sacrifice. And so it was the priest's job then to offer this sacrifice. But not only that, if you keep looking at the text of verse 2, this priest had to be gentle. It was, the priest wasn't just a great high butcher in a butcher store. He wasn't just a master of meat that would just officiate this ceremony, cut up the, the burnt offering, stick him there. Okay, okay, next please. Come on. Time's going. Move it, move it, move it. Line up, line up, line up, line up. 
No, it says here that he had to be able to gently work with the people. What kind of people? The ignorant and the misguided. Those people that didn't really have an understanding of true theology. They, they didn't really know the Bible that well. They, they were ignorant of the word. Some of you know people that are spiritually dumb, that are ignorant. What do you think of those people that just don't have it together like you have it together in terms of they're not as biblical in their theology as we are? We're reformed. We're biblical. Here it says that a priest, for those that are ignorant, those that either didn't know God or didn't know God that well, didn't know theology that well, that the priest had to be compassionate. And the word that he uses here for for gently, it's only used here in the whole Bible. It's a totally unique word for, for gentle. And you can find it in Philo and some other Greek writings. It's the idea of really stretched out compassion. Stretched out compassion. And to do it with the misguided. Misguided is, I think the Greek word is uh, plan, planios. We get our word what from that? All of you know this word from misguided. It's the word planets. Plan is a Greek word. Plano. Because the planets do what? Do all planets and our solar system, are they stationary? Are we stationary right now? <laughs> we're on the earth. The earth is spinning around. And then also we're going, well, also we're like in this big orbit, right? Well, this is taken from this idea of the planets are, are moving and wandering. But here it's the idea more of like these sheep are just kind of wandering. What's going on? You know, they like lemmings, right? They would just do, 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 walk and fall off the, the cliff. That's the idea here in this text that as people, we can be like, like sheep that are, are kind of dumb and kind of just wander around and would get into trouble. Without the grace of God, without Christ, without the Word of God, without the Spirit of God, typically, spiritually, we're dumb and we get lost. And it says here that a priest is not given a butcher's cleaver or like a meat tenderizer. And if somebody misbehaves, boom! Get in line. Speed it up. Bang, bang, bang. No, he, he's to be compassionate with the people and tender with the people. Why? Well, you can see, look at verse 2. Well, the reality is even the human high priest has weaknesses. He's beset with weaknesses. And, you know, he's finite. He's fragile. You cut him, a high priest, human high priest, Aaron or whoever it was, and he would bleed. He would get tired. Get hungry. Would get sick. And then it adds in verse 3, not only that, but he asked to offer sacrifices even for his own sin. Not just for the people. He, he's like the people. And that as people are all lined up and they're offering sacrifices, he has to also get in line. He also needs atonement for his sin. It's not just the people that get lined up and offer their sacrifices because they too are finite and fragile, also fallen. 
so also the high priest is finite, fragile, and fallen. And he also needs a substitute sacrifice for his crime against God. Even the high priest has no hope unless there is atonement for his sin. And then verse 4, it gives a final detail of being a high priest, this final dynamic here in this text. And it says that it wasn't that a high priest made an application and handed in an application for the job. He was appointed by God. Right? He had to be a Levite and had to be of the family of Aaron. So it was God's sovereign will and God's declaration and God's providence. Not just anybody could have this honor that they would seek themselves. And if they did, there were places in the Bible, people that tried to be you know, the high priest on their own, and God did not look at that very well. A very important position. And these individuals had to be appointed and declared that through the providence of God in the course of history. No, no nobody just on their own, in other words, could decide, you know, I feel in my heart that God's calling me to be high priest. No, it had to be, you know, Levi, and then it had to be also from the family of Aaron and the providence of God. So these are the details first of a sinful human high priest. Now, what happens then is in this text, you can see verse 5, so also Christ. And it's going to take not all, but it's going to take some of what was just said and reverse the order. Verses 5 through 10 is going to take some of what was just said and reverse the order. And you can see here in verse 6 it talks about Melchizedek. And in verse 10 it talks about Melchizedek. And verse 11 says, I really can't say everything that I want to you now about Melchizedek because it's kind of complicated and you're not going to understand it because you're not spiritually mature enough. But there are some things we have to say about Melchizedek that's important. And even he begins to say that here. And you can see, he says in verse 6, you are priests forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And even again in verse 10, you are high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And so this connects with verse 4 when he says you have a a human sinful high priest and they're from the order of, of Aaron. Well, Jesus... Is not from the order of Aaron. It's true. It's true that, that Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. That's because he's more like Melchizedek. That's why. Who in different ways is greater than the great high priest that's from the tribe of Aaron and the tribe of Levi. Or the, the family of Aaron and the tribe of Levi. Melchizedek was even greater. And that is like who Jesus is, even better than Melchizedek. And then throughout the rest of this section, all the way to chapter 10, it's going to be involving here and there Melchizedek and Jesus, and that Jesus is supreme and sufficient, more so than the human great high priest, the Arianic high priest, is Jesus. And so don't feel, beloved, that 
this is what the Holy Spirit and the writer of Hebrews would have been saying to these believers that were saved, it seems, out of a Judaistic religion. Don't feel that you have something less. If you have Jesus and you've left your culture, in some ways you might have left your family, and some of you are in prison, and some of your friends and family members are in prison, don't feel that, that you have been left out or, or that you're believing in a, an inferior Savior because he's not from the tribe of Levi. Abraham actually tithed to Melchizedek. And from Abraham came Levi and Aaron. And so Jesus is like that. Now, understanding that, just a, a, a few things, three things about this sinless but very human yet divine high priest. That is the Christ. You can see verse 5 starts by saying Christ. And it's because throughout this passage, it's going to be talking about Melchizedek. And Melchizedek means what? Malik, Mel, Mel means king. Malik, Melchizedek. Dick means righteousness, the king of righteousness. Psalm 2, Psalm 110, which is going to be quoted, is about Jesus being king. And Christ is the Messiah, the prophet, priest, and king, the anointed one. So this is really a marvelous section about the supremacy and the efficiency, the exaltedness of Jesus Christ. And so first, he was called by God. And so here it says, Christ didn't glorify himself. It wasn't simply and only that God the Son said, I have a plan to save humanity. But rather, it was the plan and program of God the Father. And it was the plan and program of God the Father to even have God the Son become a human so that he could be the great high priest. Because remember, Chapter 5, verse 1, the great high priest had to be like the people that he was representing. And so that's why God had to become like his people. He had to become a man. But as a man, the great high priest. And then he quotes Psalm 2. Look at verse 5. He quotes Psalm 2. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, we've said this before, but often we think that that means to the... Referencing the birth of Jesus. It does not. We get confused. I I get confused because it says, Today I have begotten you. And we think that that means, well, that must mean his, his birth. Well, that's not how it's understood in Scripture. For example, Acts chapter 13. You can look at Acts chapter 13, verse 33 that God fulfilled his promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus as it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It's not that God the Father had God the Son, right? God the Father did not produce God the Son. It would be unbiblical to say, it would be unbiblical to say that there was a time when God the Son did not exist. God the Son being God has always existed, forever. This verse, when it says, here in Psalm 2, um, here, Acts 13, 33, is really referring to his resurrection. His resurrection. That's what it says here in Acts 13, 33. That is, when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, it's very similar 
to Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. When Jesus rose again from the dead, it proved beyond doubt that he was the Son of God. Because death and hell and, and Satan and sin could not keep him dead and defeated. But he rose up from the grave because his sacrifice was accepted and because he was God. And so he rose again, demonstrating that in his very nature, his mission was complete and satisfied and finished and acceptable. And so that's why Hebrews chapter 1 Verse 3 says, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty and high, which implies, of course, he had to have raised up from the dead. So here in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5, when the Holy Spirit is quoting Psalm 2, today you are my son, today I have begotten you. He's quoting that in a reference to Jesus being the great high priest, meaning his priestly work is done. It is finished. It is over. It was successful. He himself is the sacrifice, but he himself rose again because the sacrifice was achieved and accepted by God the Father. It's referring to the nature of his work was victorious. The nature of his work was that of a great high priest, and even more so because he offered up himself. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. All of this is all uniting and tying together. And then he quotes another scripture, again from the book of Psalms, again about Christ. Psalm 2, again, is very heavily inundated with language about the Son of God being king. So is Psalm 110. But yet in Psalm 110, it says this, You are priests forever according to to the order of Melchizedek. Just look at Psalm 110 briefly, and we can see this. Remember that Jesus quotes this to the Pharisees when he says, so who was, you know, David's son? Because he calls him Lord, and he's referring to Psalm 110. Just read, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You see that in verse 1. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So David is saying to his Lord, which ultimately is the Messiah, which is in, in his line. And it says in verse 4, the Lord has said, and he's promised, and he's not going to change his thinking on this, that you are a priest forever, according to the order of the great Melchizedek. 
And so both by chapter 5 of Hebrews, verse 5 and verse 6, is saying by his work and by the declaration of God. The declaration of God, verse 6, by God declaring and also by the work of the Messiah, it, it shows, Scripture shows, the Old Testament, even the book of Psalms, is showing that Jesus Christ is a great high priest. It was the plan and program of God. That is, that God in the book of Hebrews is saying to these beloved people that were saved out of a false religion, he's saying that the Old Testament actually is teaching that God the Son, the Messiah, Yeshua, that Jesus Christ, by his work and by the declaration of God, is the great high priest. Not like Aaron, but actually someone greater, like Melchizedek. So if, for these believers, if somebody were to come to them and say, you know, you're worshiping and following a, you say he's a great high priest, but he's, he's not even from the tribe of Levi, he's not from the family of, of Aaron. Well, these believers then could say, exactly, that's the point. <laughs> he is a sinless, though human high priest, and he's also a king like Melchizedek who was a king of righteousness, king, but also a high priest. He's of an entirely different order than the Levites and Aaron. Something unique and someone special. Further, not only was he called by God, he was human in his prayers. You can see this in verse 7. He was human in his prayers and you can know how it starts off in the days of his flesh. In the days of his flesh. But w- what is interesting is when you look at verse 7, right after it says, in the days of his flesh, our Bibles say, he offered up. And the Greek text, he offered up, comes more toward the end. If you're reading the Greek text, it would say, in the days of his flesh both prayers and supplications, with loud crying and tears, to the one to save him from death, he offered up. Why does the Greek text do that? The Greek text could use word order to its advantage. And if it wanted to highlight something, make something stand out and emphasize it, it could switch the word order and put something or, or many things in front of the main verb. And so here, in the Greek text, These words, prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, that's what's being emphasized. That is that Jesus really prayed, and he prayed really hard to God the Father, who he knew could rescue him. He really prayed, he prayed really hard, and he was real with God. Even though he was God the Son, verse 8 says, although he was Son, although he was Son, in context, the Son of God, chapter 5, verse 5, you are my Son. Even though he was the divine Son of God, he prayed to God the Father. Being God of very God, God the Son, Jesus Christ, had a champion prayer life. 
But he was real with God. Look at these words, loud crying, tears, prayers and supplication. The idea of prayers is just general prayers. Supplication is the idea of intercession. Jesus was the best intercessory prayer ever. He was the prayer warrior of all time. And because it's plural, prayers and supplications, I don't think it's just in the Garden of Gethsemane. That would have been the capstone of his prayer life. But his whole life was one of consistent, persistent prayer. But he says loud crying. Loud is fine, but it's one of the words used in the book of Ephesians for might and power. It's strong crying. Have you ever had a strong cry? A, a mighty cry? Where you just whack, you, you just whack. You know, just cried. That's what, that's the intensity of the crying that Jesus had in some prayers. Sometimes we can think that Jesus is not like us. And he's not in the sense that he was sinless and he's the creator of the whole universe. But he was also like us in the sense that he could really cry. And he did that when he prayed. That's what the text is saying. Tears. Now, looking at this text, many people take this next part where it says, to the one able to save him from death... And then they get into, many commentaries do this, will get into different opinions of what this mean, what this means. Does it mean that Jesus was afraid to die? Does this mean he was afraid of losing that perfect fellowship he had with God? Well, Jesus never had any type of sinful fear, certainly. And we can see in the, the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Lord, you know, this is not something at this moment that I look forward to, but not my will, but your will be done. But those commentators are, are missing the main idea. Here, it's not talking about the content of the prayer. It's about to who he's praying to. It's not about the content of his prayer. The, whole, the grammar is to the one who was able to save him from death. It's not about what's the content of his prayer. He, he's praying to the one that he knows can rescue him from anything. That's the point. The point isn't here. What, what was Jesus specifically praying for? But rather, it's who he was praying to. God, his Father, who could deliver him with a... You know, millions of angels in a second from death, from being crucified. So he wouldn't have to lose that fellowship with God. It's about who he's praying to. He's praying to God the Father. Basically, it's saying that Jesus, what he taught is what he did. So when he taught the Lord's Prayer, that's how he prayed. Our Father who is in heaven. And then at the end of that prayer, it talks about the Father is able to rescue us from evil, or the evil one. And that's how Jesus prayed. He had real prayers, and he prayed about real things, and he did it with real passion and real emotion 
and he put all of his trust in the Father. And that's even what it says in chapter uh, 2 of Hebrews, verse 13. And again, I will put my trust in him. That is, Jesus, though God of very God, though being full deity in his incarnation, normally choose not to rely on his deity, but to rely on the deity of the Father, on the Spirit, and on the Word of God. Even when he prayed. And it says, then, that he was heard because of his piety. He was heard because of his piety. And we'll talk a little bit more about this in a few minutes. But I thought of Psalm sixty-six, eighteen: If you and I regard wickedness in our heart, God will not hear us. And there are too many times, I think, where I've prayed and God did not answer certain prayers, not because he's unfaithful, but because I am. I was harboring some wickedness in my heart. But not Jesus Christ. He never sinned. He was always godly, always faithful, 100% with his life, always obeyed God. And his prayer was heard because of his godliness. But he died. So how did God hear his piety? Because he rose again. Because <laughs> he rose again. That's why. And now... He's exalted over all. And everybody will bow their knee to Jesus Christ. So God, the Father, heard God the Son and answered his prayer, and he rose again. He really prayed. He prayed hard prayers, real prayer, with all of his, his emotion. Uh, Psalm 62, 8, right, again says, he, pour out your heart to God. That's what Jesus did in prayer. King David, you read the Psalms and incredible prayers to pray. But King David wasn't a prayer champion. That's Jesus. Jesus Christ is the perfect model for how to pray. Now further, we'll pick up some speed. He was human in his education. That is, Jesus Christ, God, had to learn some things. And it's strange and odd initially when we look at this. But you can see in verse 8, although he was a son, and you could translate that even although being son, there's no indefinite article in the Greek. Uh, Although being son, that is being the son of God, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. What does this mean? Well, there's several things, but primarily it means that although Jesus was God, a very God, and his incarnation, it was his mission to live the perfect life, not depending upon himself, which he could do, but depending upon God the Father and God the Word and God the Spirit. And so there were certain things that in his humanity he had to learn. In this sense, there was never a time when, in all of eternity, when God experienced weakness. Until Jesus did. Jesus, God, Emmanuel, God with us, God of God. There was never a time when 
God understood being hungry until God became a man. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And then it says in verse 14 of John chapter 1, the Word became flesh. There was a never a time when God, as the triune Godhead, was ever spit upon. God didn't know what it was like to be spit on. Have you ever had somebody spit on you in anger? It's not pleasant. Jesus, the incarnate God, understood that. But not until he was incarnated. At least in part, that's what verse 8 is saying. And the word learned there in verse 8 is the word disciple, mathetes. In other words, it's saying that Jesus learned, was discipled in obedience to God the Father through suffering. It's one thing to obey God the Father when everything is going right and everybody loves you and all the angels are saying, Glory to God! Glory to the Son! Glory to the Spirit! Hallelujah! It's something else to obey God the Father when people are abusing you. And so that is what Jesus Christ, though fully God, gained experience in. That's what he tasted that he had not tasted before. It's not that he was ever imperfect or or ever disobedient, but in terms of experiential knowledge, he had not experienced weakness and affliction and persecution himself as a human. And so it was in this suffering that he learned a new type of obedience. Perhaps, though not the best illustration, but perhaps one illustration. You can read many books on skydiving. You can watch many videos on skydiving and be really excited about skydiving. But it's something else when you get to that door. It gets really (laughs) scary when you get to that door. That's something altogether different. Well, God, for us, didn't just give theology. Actually, he became a, a man, a human and learned what it was like to preach the truth and to do the right thing and still be slandered and still forgive. And that was a type of suffering, of course, the cross. And it says in verse 9, having been made perfect, he became to all who obey him the source of eternal salvation. And I talked about this earlier in chapter 2. Not perfect, but because he, he not perfect because he was imperfect, but perfect in terms of accomplishing his mission. He completed his mission. The mission ended and went perfectly. Because of that, then he is the source of eternal salvation. To all those who obey him, he is the source of eternal salvation. That's the theology of this text, and the application is going to go quick. 
That's the theology of this text. Application will go quick. Number one, you must place your exclusive trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. And verse nine, it says those who obey him. It's not obey in terms of works obedience. But Jesus said, rather, in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, the kingdom of God is here, the time has been fulfilled, repent and believe in the gospel. It says in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, to those, who, to those who don't obey the gospel, to them awaits eternal suffering and damnation. So what this letter is saying to these people that were being persecuted and persuaded to leave Christ, God is saying to them and to us, because of the person and nature of Jesus Christ, he himself is the only conscious focus for your salvation. Don't leave him. Don't desert him. There's no other name under heaven by which you can be saved except in Christ. Because he is supreme and sufficient in his work. Somebody offered you a 500 billion diaper, uh, diapers, 500 million diamonds versus monopoly money. What would you pick? You can have 500 billion trillion worth of diamonds or you can have 500 trillion notes of monopoly money. What would you pick? You would pick the real diamonds, the the real McCoy. And that's nothing compared to who are you going to pick? Jesus Christ to be your eternal security or politics? Christ, amen. Because, you know, hopefully we won't have Biden. We can get a Republican into the office. That's not going to secure your, your eternal health and wealth. Not even medicine will secure your eternal health and wealth. Marriage won't. Kids won't. Politics won't. The church won't. A pastor won't. Only Jesus Christ. Second, in terms of application, pray like Jesus. Pray like Jesus. That means get real with God. What does that mean? You're courageous. You're passionate. You're you're fervent. You're going to God, praying to Him all the time, as much as you can. Prayer is one of the priorities in your life. You pray as much as you breathe. You always are running to God all the time. You're honest with Him, pouring out your heart and your soul to Him. And I should say this, because there there can be this question of, yes, but it says God heard Jesus because of his piety, his godliness. God's not going to then hear me because I'm not that godly. Well, that's why we pray in the name of Jesus. But praying in the name of Jesus, please listen, does not necessarily mean at the end of your prayer, you say, in the name of Jesus. You can say, in the name of Jesus, at the end of your prayer, and it can mean absolutely nothing to God. It's just words 
like it's a magical phrase. You pray and then, Oh, in the name of Jesus, my prayer is now sanctified. That's not what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. To pray in the name of Jesus means you're going to God conscious that, God, I can't come to you on my own. I don't have what it takes to stand before you and make one prayer request that you should listen to because I'm a sinful man, I'm a sinful woman. I need your righteousness, I need your blood to cover me entirely, Lord. That is how you pray in the name of Jesus. In other words, we can, Hebrews 4, verse 16, we draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Not, look at my life. Look at the different words I just used in my prayer, God. I just used the right words. That's No, I come to God. Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm worse than a tax collector, Lord. If it were not for your grace and your forgiveness, I'd be lost forever, Lord. I come in that perfect, righteous life of Jesus, Lord. And then you lay out your heart and your soul before God. That's how you pray in the name of Jesus. It's not wrong to say that at the end of your prayer. I'm not saying that. But how you really pray, how you pray hard, we can't have the piety of Christ, but we can go in the godliness of Christ by justification. And then we just pour out our heart to God. And then briefly, third, follow Jesus and his sufferings. I hate preaching on sufferings because I, I, I think if I preach James 1, 2 through 4, or almost any part of 1 Peter, like 1 Peter 1, 6, 4, 13, I am truly afraid that then God is going to cause me to undergo more suffering so I can learn what I've preached. I, I, I don't want to suffer. But here we see that Jesus Christ suffered. And even the call of the gospel is what? Pick up your cross, follow me. We're not saved by our suffering, but involved in the Christian life is suffering. And so to follow Jesus and his suffering would mean that we seize suffering as an opportunity to grow, to learn. God is sovereign. Any amount of suffering we have that comes into our life, he has a purpose and a plan for it. No matter how hard and difficult it can be, whether it's a loved one suffering, whether it's we ourselves are suffering, and I understand, I do. I've told you about my, my disease, and right now it's fine, but there are times when it's very intense, and I can, God, why? Why do I have this? And I, I pray that you would, I've prayed it for it to be removed many times. Neurofibromatosis has nerve pains, and uh, the, the, the pain is not necessarily getting better as I get older. Why is that there? What can I learn? I can learn that my comfort, the, the source of my comfort, is not painlessness. It's not ease. It's Jesus Christ. His grace is sufficient. That this life is not eternal life. This life is a brief prelude to that real eternal life with Christ forever. And so whenever I feel that, that nerve pain, I, I'm not always successful, but I try to drive my mind 
in my heart to that place of what, what is God trying to teach me? That there is something else in life and that it's much better than this. And Jesus Christ is so great and so good that I'm going to praise him and not curse him. I, I'm not like Job, but I'm also not like Judas. And so I'm going to praise my Savior instead of betraying or denying my Savior. And so we can learn from our suffering. And that's why I think Second Corinthians 12, Paul says that when he is weak, he doesn't say you are strong, God. He says, if you read First Corinthians 12, he says, when I am weak, then I'm strong. Meaning, when we see how weak we are, how fragile, how finite our bodies are, and even how our soul is, we fling ourselves more upon the sufficient and supreme great high priest, Jesus Christ. These believers in the book of Hebrews were undergoing many temptations and trials to leave Jesus and to leave him, to forsake him. The Spirit of God is encouraging them to, the harder that they and you and I feel pressure to leave Christ, the tighter we cling and the more that we cry out to Christ the more that Satan and the world and society and sin and temptation try to drive us away from Jesus Christ, the more that we should cling to him and the more we should cry out to him. Have you clung to Christ and cried out to him ever? Are you clinging to and crying out to him? He would treat you better than you and I deserve. He is worthy. Lord, we praise you that you would become a, a human and put yourself in a situation that, and one mysterious sense that you had not experienced, and that is being weak and finite, not as in your Godhead, but putting on humanity, Lord, and experiencing what it was to be a weak, finite, though sinless human. And we thank you that you would do that for us, that you would learn obedience through suffering, Lord. It's mind-boggling, and we confess we don't understand it fully. But, Lord, that you would do that for us, it helps us to understand Hebrews 7 when it says that you live to intercede for us. Thank you, Lord. May we cling to you, may we cry out to you more today than we did yesterday because of this passage. Thank you, Lord. We give you the glory. Amen.